Do you feel like your boxing is starting to plateau? Do you feel like when you're in the ring, you don't look your best? Well, our friends at Detroit Boxing Company can help take care of that. They have high-quality t-shirts, hoodies, sweatpants, hats that will make you look badass when you are in the boxing ring. TJ puts out fantastic quality stuff, and you know that boxing and martial arts is close to home for me. So if you want to look tight as hell while throwing your jab cross hook, pick yourself up a t-shirt, shorts, do something. Go to DetroitBoxingCompany.com. Use the word CoreyCast at checkout, all one word, to save yourself a little bit of cash for yourself. Again, DetroitBoxingCompany.com. Code word CoreyCast. Thank God for people like my guest today. John Sharifi is a virologist who uh, is very, very interesting, unique job. When I met him at Taikai and I was getting to know him a little bit more, I was thinking to myself, wow, I don't think I've met anybody who's a virologist or who studies in that line of work. So I thought it'd be a really cool idea to invite him on to the podcast and to kind of share his knowledge on how viruses work, how people like him spend time uh, trying to combat different viruses. I mean, geez, I didn't even know that viruses could attack your body in multiple different ways. And there's different strategies and plans of attacks. Those viruses affect your body. Overall, I learned a lot from this podcast, and just from John being so uh, kind and genuine, he was able to like really explain it into simple terms and gave me really great examples and metaphors that I can kind of kind of grasp some of the understandings from this. So I hope you take away some cool things uh, from this podcast, much like I did, uh, because John's a very smart guy, and I'm uh, lucky that I had a chance to talk to him for an hour. So I hope you enjoy this episode with John Sharifi. Okay, perfect. So why don't we, we'll start, why don't you just uh, give your name, introduce yourself, uh, and uh, say what you do. Sure. Uh, first of all, I appreciate you having me on the, the podcast. I think it's a good opportunity to speak to the general public and yeah. um, hopefully dispel some misinformation and uh, give them the data as accurate as it is at the at the current moment. So uh, my name is John Sharifi, and um I got my doctorate in biomedical research from the Department of Immunology and <clears throat> Microbial Disease at Albany Medical College. I uh, studied virus host interactions, particularly with HIV. I did a postdoc there, which is essentially the equivalent of like a residency that a physician would do. And then I walked across the street and got a job as an assistant professor uh, at the Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. Um, an assistant professor, associate professor, and professor, for those who are unfamiliar with academia, it's basically like a white belt, blue belt, black belt. It's just a mm. ranking system. Gotcha. So I was there for about five or so years, and then I came to the Syracuse area for family reasons. 
Um, currently, I'm doing what's called a visiting assistant professorship at Lemoyne. So I'm, it's a one-year appointment. I'm teaching microbiology, and I'm actually spending my quote-unquote free time uh, writing a manuscript based on the research that was conducted when I was at the pharmacy school. Nice. And when you were at the pharmacy school, what were you focusing on specifically? So I carried over the work from my postdoc, which in a bit carried on from uh, my graduate studies. But when I was a postdoc, there was a good friend, um, graduate student, and she's now moved on to other things, Andrea Ferreria. And she had um, serendipitously found that there was a compound in uh, from cruciferous vegetables called sulforaphane that uh, apparently appeared to block HIV infection in one of the two major cell types that it infects. In a vegetable? So, oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm telling you, there's a reason why your parents say to eat your vegetables. And there's yeah, a lot of shit. stuff in there that we don't know about. Holy shit. Yeah, so we published on that, and then my that was a good chunk of my postdoc. And then when I was in the pharmacy school as a professor, I continued to collaborate with the folks at Albany Med. And basically, I kind of so it's blocking HIV. How is it doing it? That was essentially the 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 bulk of my research. And what we're writing now is the way it's working is so all viruses, in order to replicate. They have to get inside a target cell and then they hijack the machinery of the cell and they trick the cell into making more virus. Ah. And exactly. And sometimes that kills the cell and sometimes it just allows the virus to spread to other cells. But the cells don't just sit there and say, oh, I'm getting infected. That's it. They actually recruit a number of molecules and proteins inside the cell that try to defeat the virus. And so there's this fight that ensues. Right. And what we found in what I'm writing up now and hope to get out for publication soon is that the sulforaphane is taking this protein that acts as an antiviral factor that has the ability to block HIV and it's activating it. So it's turning Bruce Banner into the Hulk so that when the virus arrives, it basically mm. gets treated like Loki and smashed around and, yes. and destroyed. That's so it's great. really cool. I love that you explain it. <laughs> you like give me like the scientific term and then you're like, Okay, here's how you can compartmentalize it. Here's a Marvel. <laughs> I will use a lot of analogies. Um, some I like are that. That's how good. I learn. Some I learn way better that be way. Bad. Good. Great. So what's like a normal day? Or I should say, so you're, you're, you're currently writing on that. Is it in specific vegetables or is it uh, across the board? Any like leafy green vegetable? Uh, cruciferous vegetables, which are apparently those that have like uh, four leaves shaped like a cross. So I'm assuming oh. cauliflower and broccoli are the big ones. Oh. Um, but really what it is, it's a tool. It's like a flashlight. It's telling us that there's a pathway within the cell that if we turn it on or activate it, we can stop the virus. So if we're out in the dark and suddenly we, we turn the flashlight on, then the pathway is sort of lit up. And once you understand the trail, you can try to figure out multiple different points in the trail where you could intervene. So maybe sulforaphane works okay, but maybe we could use something else somewhere else down the line that works better. Uh -huh. So it it's revealing a pathway that we can potentially exploit therapeutically it's almost like you're giving the cell 
like you said, you're turning it into Bruce Banner is like you're giving it like juicing it up and making it like beefy and able to fight the virus. Exactly. Is, is that the idea behind a lot of different uh, like vaccines? Like that's the idea is it juices up our current cells or is it does it work differently? It's kind of like if you're going to rob a bank, right? If the bank robbers come and they rob the bank and they take the money, well, the money's gone. But if you give the security guards and the bank tellers and everybody a heads up and say, be on the lookout, there's the these robbers, they have these masks, they're going to show up and they're going to look like this. And what will happen is basically you're ready for when it arrives. So what a vaccine does is it kind of gives all of this information to the immune system that says, be on the lookout. If you see this, you're about to get robbed. So the moment mm -hmm. the robbers walk through the door, the security guards are there, they're ready for them and it gets shut down. So that's how a vaccine works. Gotcha. Okay. And that's, that's like across the board. And is this in hopes of turning uh, like it sounds like a legitimate cure for HIV. And I, I, I know like in today's standards, it's very treatable, but is this, is the end game for this to be like an ejection and completely cure somebody? The thing about science that a lot of people don't quite realize is that it's more of a matter of, so at this level, it's what is termed basic research. And I, I don't like the term basic. I like to think of it as fundamental research we're starting to understand these basic path, these fundamental pathways that we didn't quite understand before. And as we start to gain knowledge, we can build on that knowledge. And to be truthful, the direction that it goes is really unpredictable. Yeah. Knowledge is power. You're not sure where certain knowledge is going to go. And I can give you an excellent example. The study of HIV to begin with in the 80s, when we first found out that there was this virus causing this immune deficiency disorder, obviously the intention was to study this virus to cure that disease or prevent it from progressing or, or prevent it, period, with a vaccine or what have you. Treating the disease was the idea. But as we started to learn the molecular biology of how this virus replicates, then we were able to start to use it as a tool to treat diseases that are completely unrelated oh. that you wouldn't even have realized when you first started started it so for example all viruses what they need to do is they need to get their genetic information their blueprint into the cell what that does is the cell uses that information inadvertently it gets tricked into using that information to make more virus well what if we could decide what the blueprint is going to be oh shit and then we put that information into a virus like a trojan horse and have it deliver the information we want into a cell so a few years ago there's this thing called cart t-cell therapy and i'm not going to get into the complicated biology of it but the idea was that individuals who have certain blood cancers what we do is we take their immune cells, and we as in the royal we, the scientific community, and we take a gutted version of HIV. We take their, some of their immune cells out. We take this gutted version of HIV, and we put the blueprint for a protein that would recognize the cancer cells. Mm. 
So we use the virus to deliver the information to the immune cells that say, this is what the cancer looks like. Put mm -hmm. the immune cells back into the person, and now those immune cells will recognize and kill the cancer. Nobody right. would have predicted that right. when HIV was first being studied. Right. Wow. So where cool. sulfurophane leads? It's just like you had said earlier. It's it's almost like you uh, you had showed the security guards the wanted posters. Exactly. This is what our suspect should look like. You like you showed them, and you're like, here, this is what they look like. They get in here, and you need to mess them up. Exactly. And who would have thought HIV was the tool that we used to teach the, the immune cells how to fight cancer? Wow. Wow. So and it, and that's not even like as big of a deal anymore, right? Like it seems to be pretty manageable and actually cost effective now for something that 20 years ago, 30 years ago was wiping people out. Absolutely. And it's all because we studied the fundamental molecular biology of the virus. When we understood our enemy, we could figure out ways to defeat it. Now you're, you're putting together, you said a book, right, for this, or is it research? It's a scientific paper. Okay. So, so, so it's basically going to show the data that we collected and say that, hey, just so you're aware, scientific world, um, when we use sulforaphane, it's activating this pathway, which is doing this to defeat the virus. And then somebody somewhere down the roads, possibly us or, or another lab, will pick up on that and build further. That's what I what I love so much about like the scientific community is it seems to be like across the board, everybody wants to give equal access to everybody on like this kind of information. My friend, uh, John Hess works, uh, he's a neuroscientist and he was saying how him and his group or his lab were, uh, starting to study different genomes and you could find different genomes that would, uh, signal like John's, you have a certain genome, uh, number that correlates to a high percentage of having Alzheimer's by the time you're, you're 80. And, he basically is putting this out and also running the tests on it with uh, brain cadavers and, and blood and different samples and releasing that out to the public, like to, to all other scientists. Is that the way it is across the board, no matter like if you're in biology or microbiology or whatever facet of science? In the biological sciences, I can't speak so much for like the other sciences, but it's generally the, the idea is That's you so collect. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, it, and, and it all builds. It's just, uh, I think it was Newton who said, I stand on the uh, shoulder of giants. And all that means is that that fundamental research starts to build and build and build and build. And then as we acquire more knowledge, eventually it reaches the clinic. So sharing the data, um, it's a very important thing to note, though, is the data is peer reviewed. So you put your information out there and then other experts in the field must look at it and say okay your experiments were solid your data is reasonable mm -hmm. to conclude and then it goes out there and then it's out in the ether and in theory if it's government funded eventually it has to be accessible by everybody the the the, the lay person the taxpayer etc but yeah. yeah get that information out there and build upon it interesting and so when you when you sit down to write this uh scientific journal Right. Is that is that what the name is? Yeah, it'll go to a scientific journal. So when you sit down to write that, what is the process like and where do you how do you start on a project like that? So 
it literally builds off of the the previous project which built off of of the data from others, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I would start off by explaining our initial observations with sulforaphane that we published previously and say, you know, this is what we saw and this is what's out in the field. And these are the experiments we did. This is why we did them. And now this is what we see now. And it's kind of like the follow-up, the sequel to the previous story. Gotcha. And it takes it a little bit further. And then we say, you know, this is the data this is the results. And then we have, we usually typically end with a discussion saying, okay, this is how we could interpret this. This is possibly a next direction, et cetera. And then we send it out. Now I've never seen one of those before. Are they usually like a one page essay or is this like a 20 page document with? Oh, it depends. It can be extensive. It can have a one author. It can have a, a 50 authors. Um, it's kind of dependent on the journal and the process, but typically your average scientific paper, something like this is four or five pages. Um, the journals will kind of dictate everything's online now so that you can usually get away with, with, with putting more, but I'm happy to like share one with you, but, yeah. um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, four or five pages. The thing is, though, the downside is that a lot of times it's kind of written towards the scientific community. So a lot of it is, sounds like gibberish and ac acronyms. Mm. Yeah. So but m pretty much any scientist, if you reach out to them, is willing to explain it in terms that the general public would better understand. And I think that's a good thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I'm all for sharing information. I think that's one of the coolest things about just the age we live in right now it's just you can literally type in google anything and you learn how to knit in five minutes yeah you know what i mean like there's just so much so much information out there oh, you but it learn seems some like reverse stance what's that you learn some reverse stance techniques that's right dude that's and that's the cool thing about taikai is like i feel like i always meet these like really cool people and all these different hobbies and a lot of times like I'll see you for maybe two hours a week. And when we're there, we're like, John, what's up, dude? How's yeah. all right? So we're going to, this is the combo we're going to do. I never get the opportunity to be like, John, what is it that you do for a living? And like, really see that like you're an expert in the field, especially for like, how long have you been in this career? So I would say if we start from when I entered graduate school, probably 2009. Yeah. So, I mean, a really long time, really yeah. seems like really impressive. What's like the, what was the, the point that wanted you to get into this job and this career path? So my father was a high school biology teacher. And as I was growing up, he obviously explained the natural world to me. So, um, you know, it was, it was something that caught my interest very early on. And um, it's kind of interesting when you get the birds and the bees talk from somebody who's a <laughs> biology teacher. Yeah. All scientific names. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so I just, I, I kind of fell in love with the biological sciences from an early age. And then I went to uh, college and I decided to major in biology. And I, uh, you know, most, most students who go into biology, they think that you're either going to become an ecologist or a physician. And I was one of those that didn't really realize the breadth of opportunities that were available to me outside of those two jobs exactly exactly yeah. so um as i was going through my undergrad and um learning about the different biological systems i had a immunology and a biochemistry professor who like just woke me up to the idea of 
um, doing scientific research for a living. Um, and a lot of people don't know this, but you actually, you're, if you go into a doctoral program, you, your entire education is paid for. So, or your entire graduate education. So you receive a stipend, you don't have to pay tuition and you get free health insurance. And the idea is that you focus a hundred percent on making scientific discoveries. And so th- badass. It, so cool. it is, it is. You don't make a lot of money coming out. That's the, that's the, mm. the downside. Right. But really what it is, is the hook. The hook is when you discover something that the rest of the world is unaware of right now. You've uncovered some secret of nature that nobody else knows. That's very addicting. What's that feeling like? So we would have these, uh, we'd have these jokes. Um, Remember the old pinup? pinup posters of a lovely young lady that people would put up on the wall yeah so i would do that with a good piece of data some solid (laughs) finding i would print out a nice bar graph or what have you and i just pin it up and i would just like as i'm doing my other lab work i'd look at it and admire it and it's just like it just feels really good i mean nature and biological systems are extremely complex and you know we being human beings are really gifted in our ability to manipulate and understand it. And when you just, it's just, you got, you have a secret, you have a secret of the universe that nobody else knows at that moment. And it's just, it's addicting. That is, that's a cool way to put it. You have a secret the universe doesn't have. (laughs) Yeah. That's so badass. And did you just kind of like stumble into the HIV stuff or was this uh, like, my friend John sounded like he just got hooked up with a professor that was during doing neuroscience and then he kind of just fell into it. Was there a plan for you? It's sort of the same thing. It, uh, um, my, I was in a rough situation in my last year of undergrad because I had transferred in and I was in this weird scenario where I needed a certain course to graduate that I hadn't had the prerequisites and I was just being hammered with upper level, biology courses and I used to study in this little desk outside of my biochemistry professor's office slash genetics professor and she was just the best Um, and she saw me really struggling here and she says you know what I know this gentleman at Albany Med um, and he does research on HIV and you know if you have once a week where you can go down there and and work with him um, what I can do is I can have that count as an elective. We can drop that one course and reduce your burden. So I said, Whoa. sure, that, yeah, that sounds awesome. And then when I got there, it's very different when you're in a real research lab. Um, it's just, it doesn't How's feel it different. So when you're in a teaching lab, like a lab, like a chemistry lab in college, there's a set number of protocols and you're just kind of going through the motions when you're in a r- real research lab. there's protocols and there's things you do, but you don't know what's going to happen. It's Mm. real science at that point. And so that becomes very exciting. It's, it's a, it's a mystery that you're trying to solve. It's almost like the ones in the classroom setting, you kind of have an anticipated ending or a conclusion to it. But when you're in the research lab, you're like, Oh shit, who knows? Exactly. That's exactly it. That's a perfect way to put it. So that, time that I spent um, working with him at Albany Med eventually led to a technician position where I got more involved and then eventually to a graduate position and so forth. Ah, gotcha. Man, what a, what a road. 
to get you now you're you're teaching at Lemoyne, right? I am teaching at Lemoyne. Um, after it's only for a one year appointment. I'm, my main concern is getting out this paper. Um, I always, you know, pour my heart and soul into everything I do. So the students at Lemoyne are getting the the best education that I can give them, and the feedback's been great. Fantastic students over there. Um, but I also have a master's student who's finishing up at my previous institution, and he's going to be an author on, on this work as well. So my primary goal is to get this paper out. Then I'm probably going to take a solid year to kind of just relax and focus on, um, I don't know, maybe uh, getting getting that black belt. in. Oh, snap. BJJ. Oh, snap. I like that. I like if, that. If my shoulder heals, if I can not have any more injuries. Yeah, that's the worst. That's a jujitsu is always like you always we talk to a jujitsu guy, they're always like, Yeah, my knee or my ankle or my fingers are all jacked up and they're they got like gnarled hands. That's yeah, the only bad side. They'll tape themselves up like a mummy just to keep going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So uh when you started to make the transition to, to teaching, how have you structured was this your first year teaching and did you have like a plan going into it? So most professors will have um, a balance of teaching and research. Uh, oh, sometimes okay. it's used in more, more in one end versus the other. But I started teaching right as I became an assistant professor and doing research at the same time. Okay. So um, I found teaching to be great. Um, the the students are fantastic. It's another thing that's just as addicting as getting a good piece of data is recognizing that aha moment in a student where you've given them knowledge and suddenly their entire perspective on the world has changed in a way that allows them to do what they're ultimately going to do much better to have a greater understanding of their field and and that aha moment can be just as addicting as, as a good piece of data so i like teaching and uh, i like research that's a nice little uh i've, I've always said that real estate is a job that I get to fill my cup and fill somebody else's, right? I get to feel fulfilled at the end of the day. Cause I, you know, I helped somebody with close a chapter on the mom passing away, or maybe they're having a new baby and they need to expand. Like I get to be a part of that. That's what teaching, that's what gravitates me towards teaching so much as it's, it's another opportunity. I could fill somebody's cup and also fill my own. Cause it's like watching them. The second you said watching them have that aha moment. And that's, that's why I love on my Friday class is because I give you a technique and the people are stance switching and going back to Southpaw to Orthodox. And then you see the, the, the people are like, now I got this flow to the combo and they're just right. going through it seamlessly. You're like, mm, right. It's a good that. feeling. Yeah. I love seeing that. I love seeing that. It's so cool. What, um, so I guess with, with being a virologist, have you been following all the research and data with, with COVID and coronavirus, which is part of the reason why I wanted you on here was because oh, absolutely, I wanted some, expert opinions on what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. I have obviously from the very beginning, I've followed it closely and uh, I will have the little caveat to say that I am technically not a coronavirus um, biologist, but. Um, and there are separate different biologists that focus on different like illnesses, right? Right. So, so it's like HIV. Like a cardiologist versus a pulmonologist, a heart versus a lung physician. Uh, there's going to be overlap in their knowledge, but there's also right. going to be certain things that are very specific. Right. That having been said, um, just 
by my you know educational background and my ability to understand the literature, et cetera, I will have a better understanding than the general general public. So I'm happy to communicate that. Does like all the information that you read about it does it come through the scientific journals? Is that how you usually read up on data? For the most part, but there are also scientists that have really good podcasts. One that I would recommend is This Week in Virology. These guys are really good at just kind of hashing out the science, and they're willing to say when they're right and when they're wrong or when it changes. Um, I think that something that's very important to, and I think people know this, but it needs to be said, and they need to just kind of have that be brought to the surface, is that the it's like when you first started when you walked through the door for the first time and started doing muay thai compared to now your knowledge base and your skill set and your ability to handle certain things are dramatically different and better than they were when you first started right. so when the pandemic happened the information our knowledge about what's happening the information is fuzzy and it slowly gets clear. And in this pathway of learning about the virus and learning about the disease and learning about the social aspects of it, there's a lot of fuzziness where information ebbs and flows and changes. And some people can interpret that as either misinformation or nobody knows what they're talking about and they get right. frustrated. Right. And I understand that. But I think it's important to focus heavily on the stuff that is always seems to be strong and holding true and to understand that eventually the closest approximation to the truth will come out and to be a little bit forgiving and patient when things seem to be contradictory or or are mixed up yeah definitely it's definitely so much different than it was april 2020 everybody was scared like nobody even wanted to go out of their house because they didn't know what to expect and here we are like two years later where now we have a vaccine a booster and a lot more looser guidelines on things when everybody's starting to have a plan of attack for these things like getting like two years to me sounds like a pretty quick turnaround for a vaccine right so how does somebody who thinks that it's that it was too quick to come out i feel like there's a lot of people working on this vaccine and when did we have we it was april and then was it by the end of the year we had a vaccine for it yeah i think uh that that was an astonishing feat that that, that that's that so happened. cool yeah it's so cool and I don't blame people for, for being concerned about the fast turnaround time because it may it gives the impression that things were, um, when they were rushed, that there were things that skipped, there were corners that were cut, and that the data right. isn't sound or that there's problems. But you have to think about it like remodeling your house. It all depends on money. Time is money and money is time. So if I have a little money, I can maybe remodel the bathroom. And then a little later on, when I accumulate a little bit more money, I can remodel the kitchen. And over the course of a few years, I can have the house that I wanted. And that's how typical vaccine development works. It takes several, a little bit at a time. Exactly. The key difference here is now if somebody, this old house came along and they said, we want to use your house and put it on PBS or YouTube now. And 
we're going to dump all this money into it. Well, that house would get that bathroom, that kitchen, that paint, the whole thing would be done right. in, in like a month, right? Boom. Exactly, exactly. And it's going to get done well because everybody's watching. And that's essentially what happened with the vaccines. The technology had been in development for a very long time. But just like anything else, if you dump a whole bunch of money on it, it's going to get done and it's going to get done fast and well. A whole hell of a lot quicker than when the, you have to fight for for dollars and fight exactly. for sponsors to continue your research exactly as opposed to the government being like holy shit there's a lot at stake here please everybody find a cure for it exactly exactly right and when um when the thing i feel like this is that was such a great way to put it because i i don't think a lot of people compartmentalize it like that but that is such a great way to put it that it's like well, duh, if we throw a lot of money at something, it's going to get done a whole hell of a lot quicker. And I would imagine that there's a lot of labs that probably shifted their focus from HIV work to coronavirus. That's exactly work. what happened. A lot of labs all over the country shifted. And coronavirus has been around for a while, right? With yeah. different strains. Is that the is that so, misconception? So the coronavirus is one type of of virus and coronaviruses so this is another important thing is that i guess i I, okay so i'm going to backtrack a little bit and i'm going to actually start with where these things are coming from so a lot of people buy into the theory that the SARS-CoV-2 that this pandemic was a virus that came from a lab and got released out into the world and created this pandemic. And I'm not a uh, sociologist or psychiatrist, but the reason for that is because that is a much more comfortable thing to believe than the terrifying truth. And the terrifying truth is that we are all subject, follow me here, to the second law of thermodynamics, which says that the universe must always tend towards disorder. So if I took an egg, for example, and I dropped it, what would happen to the egg? It would shatter. It would shatter and smash and make a mess. That's the second law of thermodynamics in action. Now, technically, if I wanted to, I could rebuild that egg and restore it to its original shape that would take me to actually cause more randomness and chaos and disorder by expending an enormous amount of time, energy, and resources, and it still may never be perfect. So what that means in more colloquial terms is that shit happens. And when you come face to face with the realization that sometimes for reasons that aren't obvious and that aren't clear and that we can't necessarily predict, there is a very real possibility that you or your loved ones, your life will either be dramatically changed or lost for reasons beyond your control. So it's much more comforting to say that this virus was created in a lab and came out and escaped. These are the bad guys. And if we stop them, this will never happen again. But the reality is that multiple microorganisms are out in nature at this very moment. They're constantly, other viruses, coronaviruses included, 
constantly moving back and forth from one organism to the next. And most of the time it fizzles out. Sometimes the organism, the microorganisms establishes a new host. This is constantly happening. Hold on, I got to remove Blix here. Oh, Blix. Uh, um, she's a cute little cat. <laughs> so a lot of times. Now it's like a this, parrot. Now she's going to yeah. sit on your shoulder. This is this is probably going to have to get edited in post. <laughs> but so it's it's a terrifying reality that this is happening all the time, that these viruses, these other infectious agents are moving from organism to organism and they're dipping their toes in the water. A lot of times it'll fizzle out, but sometimes it will take off and it will spread and it'll make its way into humans and then spread through the human population. So if we ignore that this is the reality of how things work and we try to pretend that it came from a lab and blame a situation that isn't the case, then we're going to be completely blindsided when this happen, happens again, and it will happen again. Right. So, there, so these coronaviruses are one of many types of viruses that have what are called a broad tropism. What that means is that each virus absolutely has to infect a cell, but the type of cell the organism for which the cell is present can be different. So for example, smallpox virus is a strictly human pathogen. What that means is that human beings are the only host for smallpox. I didn't know that. Which is why we were able to eliminate it as an infectious disease. Hmm. Coronaviruses, they have a broader tropism. What that means is they can infect several different mammals. Hmm. And eventually, it, just by changes that occur in the virus over time, it had the right changes somewhere, somehow, at some point, it made its way into humans. And then it probably That's happened right. more than once. And right. it probably fizzled out, but then one change gave it an advantage, and suddenly it became a human-to-human -human disease. So it's out in the environment, and coronaviruses are spreading um, and this is not the first time that this has happened. So we've had coronaviruses make their way from the natural environment to the human population several times before. The two common, oh. yep, the two common cold coronaviruses are thought to have emerged probably in a very similar fashion to SARS-CoV-2 and probably spread throughout the world. And at some point an equilibrium was reached between the common, what are now the common cold coronaviruses. So it's likely that those viruses spread, a lot of people died and equilibrium was reached. And now we have this equilibrium where the virus gets to replicate, but doesn't kill us. And we just get the sniffles. Right. Then another coronavirus made its way, jumped into the human population, SARS-CoV-1. This happened around 2003. And this was scary because that SARS coronavirus actually had much more severe disease, but there was a fundamental difference. That virus was most transmissible when you had the most symptoms. Uh, so when you were sickest is when you were most transmissible. What that uh, means is we can identify and quarantine before the virus spreads. Right. 
Same thing happened with the MERS coronavirus in 2011. It jumped from dromedary camels to the human host. Same Whoa. thing. Yep. Very from camels to humans. It's thought it went from bat to camel to humans. Yeah. Wow. Holy shit. But it didn't get human to human, luckily, because it was a very severe disease. And those who got it were very sick. And the maximum trans transmission was when they were very sick. Hmm. The difference with this virus is that it is not as severe, which means and it is most transmissible when the person is either asymptomatic, meaning they're not experiencing any symptoms, or they have very mild symptoms. So we can walk, we can breathe, we can talk, and it's going to spread like wildfire. Right. And as a result, it has spread globally. And the other issue with that particular coronavirus that we're dealing with now in the pandemic is that it has, I don't know if you're aware of, of Roman mythology, the, the god Janus with the two heads. No. This particular strain of virus is two-faced. For most individuals, it's an asymptomatic infection. It doesn't cause any significant problems. You might get a, a, a some discomfort for a week or two. And for other individuals, you end up suffocating to death. Right. So it's, it's dramatic. But coronaviruses are out there. They're in nature. They're constantly circulating. And it just so happened that this one had the, the right combination to make its way through the human population. Yeah, and it, that, that's what... Uh... It's, I think it's easier for people to blame it, like you had said, on on a Wuhan lab in China. When I did say earlier, it is nice being in an age of technology where you could literally Google anything. But there's also a flip side of that coin is you get stuck in an echo chamber of the same information of all the same people and you never think outside the box. And I think that's a, a case of a, some some people who are, still thinking this originated in a in a freaking lab in china it's yeah it's just and so it, it's just so strange and if you're unaware that this type of thing is happening all the time in nature and it's going to happen again and it's more comfortable like i said to to blame somebody then you're more prone to to believe that the other thing you got to realize is that and i'm probably saying this wrong but wuhan is not like some random place in in, in out in a rural area that has like a research facility. It's a major metropolitan area. So what oh, like, yeah, so it's kind of like New York City in a way. So hmm. what likely happened is that an individual possibly exposed elsewhere, like a lot of people, migrated to this major metropolitan area, which is a it's a transportation hub as well. So it connects to many different regions, just like a big any big city here. They came in and then quickly the virus spread. Now, out in the rural environment, you're not going to detect that there's this uptick in this severe pneumonia. But when suddenly people are clustered in a big city that has exactly resources, hospitals, technology, 
you're going to detect that there's a dramatic increase in a particular type of ammonia, uh, pneumonia. And then what you're going to do is you're going to go to the research institute that's in the same city and say, hey, can you look at these samples? They're going to have the personnel, they're going to have the technology, and they're going to look and they're going to say, yeah, there's something new here and we should warn the world. So it looks like it comes from Wuhan and this research, this viral, right. virology research, but in reality, that's how you know it's there. It made it to a place where it could be seen. Right, right. And you're, you uh, have said that like this could very well happen again in the future of another strain of some kind of virus, whether it be COVID or not or coronavirus or not. How does the virologist community, how do they prepare for something like that? That's a fantastic question. The answer is we have to go out into the wilderness and we have to survey and there's ways to do this safely what we do is we take samples from animals we take fecal samples we take any number of samples that we can get our hands on and there are ways to safely look at the genetic information sort of get an idea of what's out there once we have an idea of what's out there, we can kind of relate it and say, okay, for the things that have made it its way into the human population, the common cold coronaviruses, SARS-1, now SARS-2, the influenza viruses, for all of these viruses that have made their way into their, the human population, are there any similarities between these now human viruses and these viruses that are existing out in nature? And what that does is it gives us a heads up. It says, okay, this one has what is called pandemic potential. Hmm. So we can start to study and prepare. And we could be wrong. It may not make its way. But if we don't look, then we 100% are not going to know when it's coming. So right. surveillance is the, is, the, is the answer. Go out and look. And try to just basically get as much data from the outside world and predict what might happen yep right right and now it's it seems like with all these different viruses we there's all these different plan of attacks especially like the one you had said earlier where it's like here's your wanted poster then uh there could be one what are other ways that some viruses are are cured through vaccines is it usually like here's the wanted poster or is there other ways there are other ways. So sometimes drug development will work. And a lot of times what companies will do is they have a sort of repertoire of various drugs that they've made. And what they'll do is they'll test the drug in like cell culture, cells in a dish, and see if it has the ability to inhibit the virus. And then those that do are further tested, maybe in animal models, and it works its way up the, ch the chain. And then what will happen is if we have a strong candidate, so it's kind of like we have all these different drugs and we start testing them all out in a very safe system, see any ones that show any signal that they can blo block infection. Then we move it up to the animal models. And let's say some of the animal models um, Drug number one and two looked good, but it kills the animal or makes the animal sick. We can't use it. Three and four didn't make the animal sick. Okay, so can we now move into a phase one clinical trial, which is basically wow. we're going to dose it up slightly in people and see if there's any adverse side effects. Okay, it looks like there's no adverse side effects. Then we move on to phase two, which says, okay, is it effective? Does it work? 
And then in phase two, you take your population that is at a high likelihood of being exposed, let's say, to a particular disease. You have them take it versus a placebo or whatever the standard of care is. And does it work? Is there a statistic difference where it works better than what than either nothing or what we currently have? And if that works, you expand the number of people to a phase three, which is essentially the same. Does it work? But now we're testing instead of maybe a thousand people, we're testing 30, 40, 50,000 people. And so at that point, you get much stronger data that, yeah, this particular compound works. So uh, the two new drugs that have been developed were essentially developed in that way. Um, I, forgive me, I forget the name of them off the top of my head, but they it's probably super hard to remember. It's like probably yeah. 12 different consonants jammed together. Yeah, I, I would totally butcher it um, <laughs> if, if I said it, but they're they're. <laughs> there's not even enough of them out there yet to be used um, therapeutically for the masses, but they're really good at blocking viral replication. Um, so, you know, and they likely emerge through just testing a panel of different chemicals and moving it up the ladder like that until we found something that was relatively harmless in humans and relatively effective at treating the disease. Man. I'm so glad there's people smarter than me doing this kind of stuff. <laughs> here's here, here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. And a lot of people say that because I, I, I tell them what I do and they're like, oh, you must be so smart. I am no smarter than than you. I 100 percent guarantee you could do what I do. And it's just a matter of different paths in life. That's all it is. Just going to school for for how long? How long do you go to school for? Oh, boy. Ten, ten, years, years, right? ten years. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Jesus, to get your doctorate, like that's insane. Yeah, but it's just a matter of like, what's your passion? You're gonna be, you're a, a four stripe purple belt. You're gonna be a brown belt soon. Uh, two stripe. Two. Yeah, stripe, I grappled you. You're 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 pretty much a brown belt. So. <laughs> yeah, soon. But how long did that take? Right. Long time. It's just a matter of like, if if that's something that you're into, you can do it. So, I wouldn't say that anybody's smarter than you. They just took a different path. That's that's very nicely put. Do do you have plans next? So after next year, you finish your uh, your paper. You focus on putting that out. What's next? Is it getting back in the lab? Is it teaching more? Is it is it maybe writing a book or something? I don't know. That's a great question. Um, to be honest, um, I don't know. Like uh, I feel like. I kind of just going to wait and see, see what the opportunities are out there for me. Um, part of me just kind of, kind of wants to like build a lab in my basement. You know what I mean? And like <laughs> teach part time and just kind of like cut through all the red tape and the, and the John, bureaucracy. I, I think that's how like Spider-Man villains start. <laughs> like they build a lab in their basement <laughs> and that's then soon true. you're going to like turn into a crocodile, dude. I don't know if I, <laughs> <laughs> killer croc, croc john oh that's hilarious well i mean i guess I, I i could also just seek out like another professorship but like i said there's a lot of bureaucracy and red tape it took a long time to get 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 my work to a certain point because there was a lot of hurdles that i wasn't expecting um to cross but i don't know i just will just wait and see Something will you go like back into work with hiv you think yeah, probably. Um, 
it's a it's a it's a very interesting virus it's uh taught us a lot um and like i said it's been used in ways that were never predicted when hiv first came out but i'm not opposed to studying other viruses um i honestly i love science um it, it's just very fascinating to me i, I could go in anywhere if i had the knowledge base i'd even go into like quantum physics because well yeah I told that you that sounds that sounds wild quantum physics yeah i listened to uh, being such like a like a virus nerd junkie i don't know whatever the hell you want to call it is there one particular virus that has like like a wild crazy story like everybody knows like the black plague story right in medievals rats ate food and then people ate the food and got sick from that is there any virus that you just like love to learn about because it was so unique or interesting Oh, that's a good question. They're all very, very, they all have unique characteristics about them. I I think, honestly, HIV, um, I, I would say HIV is probably one of the most interesting viruses. That, Do you think it's uh, because of the era, the time period of when it came about? So, what makes it so interesting? All right, so so check this out. All right, so the way HIV replicates is it starts with an RNA genome, and you don't even have to worry about what RNA is. It gets converted to DNA, and then it takes that DNA, which is the blueprint to make more HIV, and it inserts it into the host cell. So now the yeah, the information to make more HIV is part of your cellular DNA for any cell that it infected, which is why it's so hard to cure. The information wow. is hiding there. And if you look at the human genome, it looks like there were these events that happened throughout our history where a virus very similar to HIV did that it inserted genetic information into our cells and mm -hmm. some of that information stuck with us as we developed as as organisms to become human beings and there's more and more evidence that those little fragments of previous HIV-like viruses that infected us are still in our genome and have important roles so for example the development of the placenta there's a protein that's involved in helping that placental formation that is thought to have originated from an HIV-like virus that infected us many, many, many years before we became human. And now our bodies have usurped that as a tool. And if you look at the genome of, let's say, a chimpanzee versus a human being, the the genetic information, the code is very similar, probably 99-some percent similar and the biggest differences between the chimpanzee and the human are in these retroviral elements these remnants of previous viral infections that look like hiv like viruses that infect us infected us over time so in other words our the viruses that have inf infected us over our the course of our evolutionary our evolutionary development are essentially you could argue what are making us human really wow so you think yeah. there's signs that 
we were infected before with a disease like HIV, like in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of evidence that there's there's pieces of, of remnants of previous infections just like that in our development. And the big difference between us and chimp- chimpanzees and similar organisms is in those elements, those little viral pieces. So it could be that those previous infections are what made us human. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. You just blew my mind on that. I'm telling you, that's the that's the kind of that's the field I'm in. That's that's why this stuff Jesus. is fascinating. Ah, man, what what question do I even ask after that? That's that's kind of scary, but also kind of cool. It's like I've always wondered what's been the evolution from what what, what caused us to evolve from monkeys. Like what what was it? Was it a need for more food? more housing was it we wanted more i i, I don't know like i i don't know it, it's probably a mix of everything but the data is and is, hiv apparently or a disease like hiv yeah. they're called <laughs> human endogenous retroviruses or herbs herbs yep herbs yeah huh it's wow. cool stuff Do, is there signs that something like that have evolved other species as well like not not even just like fish or something yeah actually there's other this has happened in other animals and like one of the issues with for example using pigs for organs to transplant into humans is that for us these retro these endogenous viruses have been essentially shut down they're just pieces of there's no intact functional virus anymore it's just pieces of information but in some of these other animals, they actually make, they can make functional virus. So if you, tr- if you transplant like a pig heart into a human, um, which has been done, there's a risk that these whoa. other viruses could reactivate. So whoa, it's a concern for, for transplants. Yeah. I didn't even know they were doing pig organ transplants. Yeah. It's uh, Jesus. pigs are surprisingly close to, to humans in a lot of ways. Wow, really? Yeah. Is it still, it's not, it can't be nearly as close as monkey DNA, right? No way. Oh, as far as the pretty close though. Oh, that I don't know, but I would say that like in terms of organs, pigs surprisingly um, have a lot of similarities where if we could, which is, is kind of good because if we, if we could get around some of the, the biological issues, it might be close enough where we could, use that as an alternative to human to human transplants. Jeez. I science is wild. Yeah. I'm telling you that is, it's such a cool field. And especially like when I talk to somebody like you or I, my friend John has is like my only other friend that I have in my life who is a scientific person. He's a neuroscientist. And I was telling, I gave you a little bit of a breakdown and it's just so cool. Like hit, like his lab is like focusing on like, how to find triggers for Alzheimer's or schizophrenia, like brain, like all brain stuff. Then you have this field, which is like, there's some overlapping similarities just in terms of like how the labs work and how you guys like get funding and stuff like that. But just yeah, in terms of like, I should, I, I would like to talk to him at some point. Sure yeah. He's, he's a, he's a cool guy. He's always been ever since we were young growing up, we always knew he was the smart one out of all of us. We knew that he was going to do some smart shit and here he is like, researching neuro like all these like brain genomes and brain markers for 
having higher risks of all these different brain. Like I just, it's really cool to see all these different scientific communities and it's just not just like one blanket one. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's why like I fall asleep listening to physics podcasts. It's <laughs> way out of my field, but like, it's which, which by the way, I do. I think it's so funny that we literally podcast. You could type in any hobby that you have in your life and you will find 10 amazing podcasts that are all on that information. And I, you showed me one earlier, virologist podcast. I never would have thought that was a podcast. And it's a great resource for people I trying love to like cut through the, cut through the BS and try to figure out what the information is. And you'll see the, 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 the data will change with time. And, and you got to be careful when you rely on CNN and Fox news and Yahoo and social media, because they're, they're going to take whatever little bit of information out there and blast it out there as the truth. And it's, it's not necessarily hashed out. Yep. Amen. Science yeah. is always fluid and always evolving and changing. So I didn't even hear about the Corey cast until I was talking to you. I've, I'm, I just finished the episode with your, with your grandmother. Oh yes, yeah. dude. That's, I will say it's my all time personal favorite episode that with, with my grandmother, and my wife. Those are my two favorite episodes. So I, I got a lot of the back catalog to catch up on, obviously. But I will say that, you know, this is a great podcast. I like oh, thanks, the diversity man. of people that you've interviewed. And it's like, what was that, the seventh or eighth one in or something yeah. like that? Yeah, yeah. So I try, like, when I started the podcast, I didn't want to just do just a real estate podcast because I felt like it would really, like, push out a lot of people. And, like, that. it would be, like, a really small niche. So I was like, I'll just talk to anybody and everybody. So it's like... Let's see. I've talked to therapists, talked to martial artists, obviously, uh, marketing experts, real estate experts, mortgage lenders, home inspectors. It's all in my field. Uh, video game streamers. Uh, man, what else? I feel like I now I want to go through the list and like name it off, but I like it because it's just plus I get to learn more about what you do, John. Yeah, I like, think this is so cool. I'm so glad you do this. And I'm actually glad I had the opportunity to talk because, you know, I know a lot of people at Taikai are, are just kind of like don't really know what's going on out there. And they listen to your podcast and, and hopefully maybe I made some things a little bit clearer and, and they now they know they can come up to me with any any questions they have. And I'm exactly. happy to answer. Hopefully you didn't just open up a Pandora's box of sh- a shit storm. Everybody knocking on your door now. It's fine. I mean, I, 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 I don't mind. I will. I think uh, you and I are very similar in the sense that we like to be a source of people's information. I think that's like, to me, that feels like why you enjoy teaching and scientific discovery so much. Absolutely. And I want people to know one very important thing. I will not hesitate to change my opinion or my mind on something if the preponderance of the data supports it so while i might feel strongly at this point if the evidence says overwhelmingly that i'm wrong i will admit that i am wrong and i'm not afraid to do that amen i think any good scientist is like that right exactly exactly right that's right dude thanks for doing this i appreciate your time on a saturday saturday uh, afternoon i appreciate you having me